when we um, are normally uh, taking up an offering, passing the offering plate around. We're avoiding the, the passing thing. Um, that's one of the advices given to us, and so we're, we'll follow that. Uh, there's actually an offering plate there on that table. There's one here. Um, you can just kind of give as you leave, um, and, uh, or as I've been saying for so long, you can continue to mail it to the church. You can get it to Bob's house. Uh, you can give online even. Actually, it turns out for the next month, um, gotten confirmation that that actually uh, is continuing through June. That's a, I think I mentioned this last week, that's actually a service. That's a, you know, normally that costs money, and we just have kind of avoided that, but this is a service being provided to us by our denomination, which is kind of uh, cool and helpful. Uh, turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 27. Acts 27. We're going to read the whole chapter, so I'm not going to make you stand uh, as we read God's Word together. Uh, Acts chapter... 27. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking on a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. Uh, There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the, uh, on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, 
all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, and we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we, would run on the run, that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And then the soldiers cut away the ropes, of the, bo- of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat, and they all were encouraged, and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, At the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Sounds like a chapter that in many ways you might expect in any number of places other than the Bible. Uh, maybe an ancient travel and leisure magazine. Hey, here's some stops along the way. If you take this cruise from um, you know, the, the eastern end of the Mediterranean towards Rome, here's some cool ports you might call on. Uh, maybe some nautical instruction book because it's riddled with all these nautical sort of terms that many of us go, I don't, 
bow, stern. I know one's the front, one's the back. At least I'm pretty sure that's the case. It could be left and right, but I'm pretty sure it's front and back. But you know, don't ask me about fathoms and lee and, and all these other sort of nautical kinds of terms. Maybe a geography textbook. You're looking back and, well, here are all the old cities that you could still visit. They may have new names. One of the ports today mentioned in this chapter actually is today called St. Paul's Bay after Paul in this chapter. It's amazing how many chapters there are in the Bible that when you finish reading, you kind of scratch your head and go, what exactly is the value of this? Because this really just seems like a story. Like, why isn't this just a chapter in, you know, a lost chapter in Melville's Moby Dick or something? Like, why isn't this just some chapter in another story? What makes this different from a, a chapter uh, recounting the history of, of events in the past? And what you find is there's much here to learn about God and His ways with His people. Paul, of course, is in chains, you remember that. I mean, maybe not technically in chains. I mean, obviously his hands are free. He's, he's allowed some freedom. Uh, he's earned some respect and honor from the centurion such that even he would let Paul go ashore and visit friends and assume that Paul, a prisoner, will come back to the boat at the end of the day. But he's a prisoner, so he's in chains. He's, he's, he's a prisoner in, on the way to Rome. And that's been his story now for two plus years. We do it in just a couple of chapters and think, oh, well, that was quick. But put yourself in Paul's shoes for a second because he was arrested more than two years ago in Jerusalem by the ranking official, the ranking Roman uh, official there at the time. Two governors, Festus and Felix, both of whom found Paul innocent and didn't let him go. King Agrippa, who found Paul innocent and, and hasn't let him go. One of the governors at least admitted that he was hoping for a bribe, that his real goal was that Paul would say, look, I'll, I'll slip you a couple of bucks if you'll let me leave. Both of them, both of those governors were hoping actually to, we're told they were doing the Jews a favor. They cared more about their political capital with the Jewish people than they did in the truth of Paul's case. But Paul had appealed to Caesar and so his only recourse was to go to Caesar, was to be sent to Rome and be tried there. And this is the story of his journey, and it doesn't even get us there. A journey filled with peril on the high seas, you know, all those sorts of cool, kind of um, uh, piratey sounding activities and events um, that he had to endure. The first thing I want us to see, though, is the way uh, people dismissed Paul's word. Luke actually gives us a, a time stamp. you got to love it when you're reading Scripture and you're told when it is. Luke gave us, you know, like those old photographs. You take the picture, and when you get your picture developed, there's a date in the bottom right corner of your photograph. July 
17, you know, 1982, whatever. Well, Luke gives us one of those right here in this passage. Look at verse 9. In verse 9, he gives us a, a time stamp. The fast was already over. It's already past the Day of Atonement, which means it's well into October. And most likely of 59 AD. But we know when it is during the course of the year. And you can go back and read all sorts of historical accounts of people telling you, you don't sail the Mediterranean, especially westward, in winter. We get this. All right, quick. When's tornado season? You know. You know when tornado season is. March, a little April, November. It's bigger than that. But in our heads, like for me, March, or what's tomorrow? Hurricane season starts tomorrow. Tomorrow's not June 1st. Tomorrow's the start of hurricane season. That goes through November. Okay, maybe not as big a deal here, but for those of us who grew up in South Carolina, we're well aware of that season. We understand how that works. And Paul has been sailing for decades. And so Paul doesn't have to be a, a professional sailor by trade to know you don't sail the Mediterranean in the wintertime. And, and it's October. He's been sailing the Mediterranean for decades. He knows what he's talking about. You and I know that when hurricane season starts, it affects how you plan vacations. You and I know that when tornado, tornado season comes around, we're aware of it as we make our plan. Well, Paul's just doing that. No, he's not, a, he's not a, a, a naval officer. No, he's not a professional sailor. But he's got the experience to know. Turn to uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. Let me just show you real quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, verse 25. Paul writes, Three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Keep in mind, this letter was written long before Acts 27. So now he's got to change it to four times. So his three times doesn't include Acts 27. In other words, if you've been on the sea enough to have been shipwrecked three times you can understand weather patterns and, and how the sea is going to work. And so his warning in verses 9 and 10 is a credible warning. It's The fast is over. And so Paul advised them, y'all, this voyage will be with injury and much loss, not just of the cargo and the ship, but of our lives, because this is a bad time to sail. 
of course, the centurion, who actually, turns out, appears to have been in charge. Not the owner or um, the captain. The centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship. So it appears the centurion is the one who decides, do we stay or do we go? He's the one making that call. You would think that would land to the pilot or the owner of the ship. Not in Rome. Not in Roman military days. If there's a Roman officer on the ship, the ranking officer becomes the man in charge. The professionals dismissed Paul's advice. I want you to notice something about verse 10. Sirs, I perceive. Paul's giving his wisdom, his advice. It's not, God has told me it's going to be bad. He's merely offering his own sage advice. Yes, it's wise. Yes, it's based on years of experience. Yes, it's not, it's not out of nowhere. But it is advice that should have been heeded. And so because they dismissed Paul's word, and Paul, Paul says as much, I feel like all the wives in the room get real happy when they read verse 21. Men, you should have listened to me. They dismissed Paul's word. But we also see them trusting God's word, at least ultimately. They find themselves in a, a storm in the middle of the sea, blown away from land, all because they wouldn't listen to what Paul had advised them to do. And it's a storm that lasted two weeks. Look at verse 27. When the fourteenth night had come, as they were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, it's a two-week storm. And they had done everything they could to make sure um, all those sort of wise things you do on the sea in a storm to make sure they were safe. They, they actually wrapped the boat to try to hold it together. They actually wrapped the rudder to keep it from moving just to try to maintain a straight course. They threw stuff overboard, things that they could get rid of to lighten the load to stay higher in the water. And yet, there's fear, there's dread, there's uncertainty, there's there's, we don't know what's going to come of this. We don't know how much longer this is going to last. I spent, um, actually most of my childhood years, most of my teenage years, on a boat. Um, not a big one. 17 to 22 foot, feet long. Um, we had a, a beach house uh, not too far south of Charleston and... Whenever we were there, my dad and I, and then anybody that wanted to go, we were all out on the water, on the ocean. And if I could see land, I hadn't gone far enough. Um, and that was how I spent my beach vacations. I don't know what to do on the beach. I need a boat to be kind of out in the water. One time was in a storm. It was the only time I ever almost got seasick. 
But it was really because there were four kids on board at the time. One of them got seasick. One of them got sick because the other guy was sick. And we were all stuck in the cabin. Hot, still, stale, now smelly air. These guys went 14 days without eating. Because when you feel like that, you don't eat. You just can't consume food. Add to it the sort of pagan idea that if there is such a thing as a God, if I fast in this dangerous, scary situation, maybe if He really is there, He'll listen to me and, and, and keep us safe and protect us. And so these people went 14 days without eating. You can imagine, even the, the sailors are afraid. The people whose job it is to be on the boat, on the sea, all the time, they're scared. In fact, a couple of them will try to escape. They try to let the ship's boat down and, and get in it so that they can at least get away from this Ship. They're convinced this ship is doomed and their best option for survival is elsewhere. But fear won't win the day. At least, not for everybody. Look at verse 22. Paul uh, gathers the men and he says, look, um, you, you haven't been eaten, you should have listened, but you didn't. And because you didn't, here we are, injury and loss and, and all this cargo, this wheat that you're supposed to be delivering to Rome uh, is going to end up overboard and you're not going to have anything uh, when you get there. Verse 22, Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. And then, that's the close of the quote. Notice verse 25. So take heart, men. Twice Paul says to the crowd, to these sailors, take heart. <laughs> And once he reiterates what the angel had said to him, do not be afraid. And so fear is driven away, at least for Paul. The others, maybe not so much. The others, you can tell there are unbelievers uh, on board. And I don't mean people that don't believe in Jesus. There are plenty of those people on the ship. I mean people who wouldn't believe that instruction, that command that came from Paul. Because you see in verse 30, they walk up to the bow of the ship, that's the front for you landlubbers, um, and, and start to let out the anchor. We're just going to let the anchors down up here. Don't mind us. Y'all just kind of do what you want. Meanwhile, they're lowering the, 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 the boat, the dinghy, that they can get in and sail away from this ship. You know people who 
when they hear God's word, they decide that's ridiculous. We know people, and, and you know, they're not us, right? I mean, like, we don't ever, do, we don't ever read the Bible and go, well, not just, it's crazy. But we know people who hear commands from God and who think that just doesn't make any sense. That violates everything I know about sailing or about life. We do this with things like the first will be last and the last will be first. No, no, this is the United States. The first are first. And and I have to climb on you to be first, and that's okay. These sailors decided that instruction from Paul's so-called God makes no sense. We have to all stay together. We have to all stay on this ship, and, and, and we have no control over it, And that's how we're going to be delivered. That's how we're going to be saved. And Paul says as much. He grabs the centurion and he goes, hey, look at those guys. You see what they're doing? They're letting down the boat. They're going to get in it and sail off. If if they do that, notice his warning. He says, verse 31, unless these men stay in the ship, He doesn't say they can't be saved. He says you. This ship is doomed if they leave. And so Paul says, look, you may have dismissed my word, but I'm going to trust God's word. These soldiers are dismissing it, but Paul and ultimately the centurion will trust God's word. They are safe if they remain together. The centurion says, okay, fine. And he cuts the boat free and now they can't escape. Dismissing Paul's word, trusting God's word. Lastly, I want you to see enduring God's ways. I feel like there's something missing in my Bible and I wonder if it's in yours. Like I wonder if I'm missing a page Or if when I read chapter 27, did that match up with what you had in your Bible? Because I feel like there's something missing. I feel like there's supposed to be a verse or a couple of verses or maybe a paragraph where we're told, um, and then God showed up and blew the storm away and the sea got calm and peaceful and the wheat was saved and everybody was happy and, and they sailed the rest of the way to Rome. I feel like what's missing in this chapter is what we find in Mark 4 when, when the disciples and Jesus are in that boat and the storm comes up and Jesus is asleep and they wake him up and say, Jesus, come on, don't you care? This is danger. There's thunder, there's lightning, there's wind, there's high seas, it's scary. Where are you? Don't you love us? Don't you care? And do you remember what Jesus did? He stood up and said, Peace, be still. And the wind and the waves stopped. Like, that paragraph isn't in my Acts 27. Where is it? See, the thing is, 
if this chapter were written by 21st century evangelical Christianity, that would be in there. We don't know what to do with storms in God's hand that don't end in and the storm blew away and everything got peaceful and quiet. That's what we want. That's what we long for. That's what 21st century evangelical Christianity, that's the way we would write the Bible if it were written today. That everything is supposed to be easy and happy and smooth sailing, yes, pun intended, and everything goes great. See, the question isn't whether or not we will face trials in this life. The question is when and how will we face those trials. The question is how will we endure them when they come. I want you to notice something. There's a word that shows up 16 times in this chapter and it's incredibly easy to miss. Like you would think a word that appears 16 times in one chapter, you would have noticed it. But I bet you didn't. Verse 1. When it was decided that we, verse 2, embarking in a ship of Andromidium, which was about to sail for the ports of the course, we put to sea. Verse 3. The next day, we. Okay, I won't do the other 13. You can go back and find the first person plural pronoun in this chapter. We've pointed this out before. Luke is the author of Luke and Acts, which, by the way, makes him the author of more of the New Testament than anybody else in terms of volume, but that's an aside. That has nothing to do with this chapter. Luke is the author of Acts, and every now and then you see we passages, and every now and then you see they passages. Sometimes he's with Paul, and sometimes he's not. Sometimes he's involved in what's going on, and sometimes he's not. Luke is on the ship. Why? He's never been arrested. He's never been charged with anything. He's never once been been put in chains with Paul. He's there because he wanted to be. He's there because he's committed to Paul. He's there to serve and care for Paul. Luke doesn't decide, hey, I know you've been arrested and you're getting ready to head off on this ship over to Rome and sail all the way across the Mediterranean to the other side of Italy. Yeah, well, good luck with all that, brother. Luke says... Save me a spot. I'm coming with you. Luke's not the only one. Look at verse 2 again. We put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian. This guy shows up only like three or four or five times in the whole Bible. And oddly enough, the two or three times in... um, in Acts, there always seems to be danger around. It's like you really kind of want to go, I probably shouldn't travel with Aristarchus anymore because before there was sort of this uprising and now there's this 
um, uh, this this storm and stuff on the sea. Like maybe I shouldn't um, shouldn't travel with him a whole lot. But you you see Aristarchus back in chapter nineteen, back in chapter twenty. He's never been arrested. He's never been thrown in prison. He's never been charged with any crimes or misdemeanors. Why is he on the boat? Because he wanted to be. Because he looked at Paul and said, oh, you're going to go as a prisoner in chains to Rome? Save me a spot. I'm coming with you. Turn to Colossians. Let me just show you um, what comes of Aristarchus. Uh, Colossians chapter 4, he also shows up in Philemon. Colossians and Philemon letters are are written uh, together, going to the same place, one to a city, one to a person in that city. Um, And so it makes sense that he would show up in both places. Uh, Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Now writing from Rome... Sometime after Acts 27, Aristarchus is now a fellow prisoner with Paul. Has he been charged? Has he been arrested? Has he just so identified with staying with Paul that Paul calls him a fellow prisoner because he is in a sense bound as a prisoner because he's bound to Paul? Look, this is the church. This is why I couldn't wait to stop meeting, in quotes, online. This is the church. These are believers looking at a brother in Christ going, you are in danger, you are in trouble, you are being mistreated, you have been arrested, you're being carried to Rome to meet before Caesar, Somebody's got to be with you. We aren't made for solo Christianity. They cared enough about Paul's spiritual good that they were committed to going and traveling with Paul. We need each other. We need the body of Christ. We need the household of faith. But we need more than that. Because Paul has more than that in this chapter. Paul has a promise from Christ. Look at chapter 27, verse 22. We've already read it multiple times. Paul says to the other people on the ship, verse 23, For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, And here's what he said. This is what the angel said to Paul. Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sailed with you. And that's the end of the quote. And that's when he starts to say, so take heart because I have faith in God. So clearly, Paul has a promise from Christ. He had a a messenger sent to him from the very throne room of heaven to encourage him and remind him, you will stand before Caesar. Which means you're going to survive this storm because Caesar's not on that boat. 
And so Paul, you will survive this storm. You must stand before Caesar. And so in light of that, they will all survive if they remain on the ship. Incidentally, you and I, because we have the closed canon, because we have the full Bible, you and I shouldn't expect an angel to show up in our house and tell us what to do next. We're not given that promise. We're not given that kind of a guarantee. There is no new revelation today as Paul had here. But I want you to notice something. This isn't the promise that Paul had. I mean, it is the promise that Paul had. But this isn't even the only promise that Paul had. Turn with me to chapter 23. Back up. And I want you to recognize you're backing up two years at least in Paul's life. And in chapter 23, verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him. And this is, Paul's been arrested. He's been taken before the council. The Roman tribune almost beat him, taken before the, the, the Jewish council, created a stir between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and then carried off by the Roman soldiers and, and put in the barracks um, you know, for safekeeping. And, and that very night, the following night, verse 11, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Paul doesn't actually need the promise of verse 24 in chapter 27 because he already has a promise from God, from Christ himself, two years ago in 2311. And God's word cannot fail. The promises of God cannot not happen. They cannot fail. You and I, and kids get this better than anybody, unfortunately, I promise, if you'll just let me do this, I promise I'll never ask again. If you'll let me stay up late this time, I promise I won't ask again tomorrow night. God, if you'll just give me this then I promise I will. And that promise dies. you got Eric Clapton playing in your head. How could we know that promises end? The promises of Christ don't fail. The promises of Christ must happen. And of course, if I'm Paul, the, the, the Martian from Bugs Bunny... Oh, delays, delays. I really want to look at it. Um, <clears throat> hey, angel. This is now in chapter 27, verse 24. Hey, angel. Um, real quick, before you leave. You do know it's been more than two years, right? Like, you know, Jesus told me this already. Two years ago. So, like, what's taking so long? You do realize that Delays are only delays to us. They're not delays to God. You and I are the ones bound by time, not Him. Delays are only delays to us. And, and God's Word, as Isaiah tells us, cannot 
return empty. It can't fall to the ground. It must accomplish its purposes. And the promise in 27 is just a repeat of the promise from chapter 23. You you and I have promises from God that can't fail. Promises like, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Promises like, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Promises like uh, John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Promises like uh, Matthew uh, 16, or 8, 16, I think it is. I will build my church, and the gates of hell cannot, will not prevail against it. These promises can't fail. Jesus promised in chapter in John 16 that in this life we will have trials. It shouldn't surprise us when we have trials. It shouldn't surprise us when we walk through dark and difficult times. But he also promised that in those trials he has already overcome the world and he would give us a helper, the Spirit, to be with us during those trials. But God doesn't guarantee we will never walk through trials. He only guarantees that we will never walk through trials alone. How do we endure God's ways? With the help of our brothers and sisters in Christ, leaning on the promises of God. Let me make just a few applications. Um, The first is this, a promise, five applications. The first is this, a promise that remains as yet unfulfilled, unfulfilled is just that. A promise that isn't yet fulfilled. Fear not. God's word cannot fail. Be encouraged. Be um, What is it? So take heart. The promises of Christ will be fulfilled. A second application. Um, Perhaps to make it overly simplistic and maybe even borderline trite. Bear with me. Um, Lynn Anderson, her Grammy Award winning song, 1970, Some of you remember 1970. She was teaching biblical truth. I beg your pardon. I never promised you a rose garden. You and I are actually going to walk through difficulty in this life. We're not guaranteed an easy, simple, smooth sailing, storm-free life. What we are promised is God's presence during those storms. When you hear people around you say, you can have your best life now, point them to Acts 27 and remind them that Paul didn't even get that, why should I? Jesus didn't even get that, why should I? A third application. Let me encourage you with this. Storms aren't necessarily a sign that you are 
outside of God's will. Storms aren't necessarily a sign that you are living in sin and disobedience. We've got to remind you, what once again, I think it's John Flavel who said, God's providence, like Hebrew, is read backwards. Hebrew is read right to left. For Jonah, the storm in the boat on the sea was retribution for his direct disobedience. And it was painfully obvious to everyone, including Jonah. This storm is not an indication that Paul is is disobeying God. In fact, he's going exactly where Christ has told him to go. Don't read the storms as an automatic indication that you are in sin. Just ask Job. It could be that, but it's not automatically that. We should expect probably more conflict, more trouble, when we're following Christ more closely than when we're not. Because the world has hated him, and it will hate us. Of, of fourth, I guess it is, application, um, let me point a word, to, word out to you in verse 24. Uh, there's one word in the, in the promise of this angel to Paul. God has granted you. You grant something that has been asked. It sounds like Paul has been praying for the boat. For the people on it, not just for himself. Where do we go when trials come? Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? Um, We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Paul, in the midst of a two-week-long storm, is praying for himself and for the others on the boat, and God is granting that request to Paul. Where do you run first when you have trials and struggles? And the last application, just one final application. Let me just make this observation a difference, a distinction between wisdom and revelation. Um, Paul uses wisdom in the first half of the chapter. I perceive, verse 10, that this voyage will be with injury. He doesn't have some revelation from God. He's just exercising his own wisdom. Now, he later gets revelation from God that if you'll stay together and do these things, I'm going to deliver you and you will make it to Rome. Here's the thing. We don't have to wait for a message from the Lord, a word from God before we act. He's he's given us his word. He's given us his message. He's given us wisdom to know how to understand it and apply it to our lives. Let me just illustrate this right here in this room. We model it already. You don't even know it. Some of you are wearing masks. Some of you aren't. Some of you came in with masks and are not now wearing them. That's a wisdom issue. You don't have to sit around at home and wait for, well, God's going to tell me, do I wear a mask or do I not wear a mask? And you know what? Nobody's here going, how dare you wear a mask or how dare you not wear a mask? He's given us wisdom. We don't have to sit around and wait for a word from God because you will be sitting forever.
That's why Paul prays in Colossians 1 that we would grow in knowledge and understanding and wisdom or all discernment. By the way, as a, just a plug, um, in God's providence, uh, when we finish Acts, which will, Lord's willing, be, Lord willing, be next Sunday, we're going to the book of Ecclesiastes, a wisdom literature book. Paul prays that we would grow in wisdom and understanding and discernment. We aren't expecting to receive a word from God, some sort of clarification for how to move forward. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for um, your word that does guide and direct us, that does give us hope and comfort in this life. When we face the trials and struggles and temptations of this world, would you grant us hope and confidence and peace in Christ peace of Christ as we endure uh, this this life in a fallen, broken world. Uh, We pray all of this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Amen.